we are putting wisdom under a microscope. We are asking the question now, what is wisdom in detail? Let's observe it. Let's understand what wisdom is in itself. We've been talking about it for some months. We've been talking about the attitudes that go into uh, the search for wisdom. We've talked about this, the search for wisdom as if searching for treasure. But now we're diving in and asking, what is this thing that Proverbs talks about, that the Bible talks about in, in all of its portions, the wisdom that we can have from God? What is it? We learned last week that wisdom, as we look at it under a microscope, is a living whole. It is not a list of bullet points. It's not information that we memorize. The wisdom of God is alive. And it it cannot be cut up. It cannot be sliced up and dissected. We can either receive it as the living thing that it is, or we can kill it. And so that is what we're dealing with when we talk about the wisdom of God. Changed the image last week a little bit to say wisdom is like a lion. If we put a lion in this room, the lion is in charge. We adapt to the lion. The lion does not adapt to us. That's wisdom. We're dealing with a living thing. And it is uh, the power and grace of God. It is literally the mind of God. So now we're going to talk about the wisdom of God under a microscope. What does it do? as it behaves, as it exhibits patterns of, of action. What is the behavior of wisdom as we look at it under a microscope? I want to introduce you to a concept here this morning that I think is very important and that really summarizes how the scriptures view the behavior of wisdom. Young people, uh, you are winding down your school year, and so the, the dreaded worksheet is going to disappear from your lives for about three months. No more worksheets. But I just want you to imagine that worksheet one more time before we start summer. I'd like you to imagine... The, the dreaded math worksheet with 37 questions on it. Let's suppose, where's Dave Calkins? Is he here? No, he, he, I already, he, he left, okay. Uh, he's a math teacher. So I, now I can say whatever I want about math. <laughs> I don't like math, that's why I'm bringing this up. Uh, and so let's suppose you've got a math worksheet, it's got 37 questions on it, and the only way that you can pass that worksheet is to get 100% right. You cannot make any mistakes, you cannot get a single question wrong, it's 100% or nothing. It's 100% A plus or F. Imagine that. No pressure, right? How do you do when you're faced with a test like that? Well, you just freeze up because it's it's almost just an invitation to fail utterly. And uh, here's the thing that I notice about the way we treat wisdom and the Christian life. We tend to think of the Christian life, especially young people. We look at it as, here are your questions. Do not make any mistakes. Get it all right. Because if you don't get it all right, you fail. That is a version of wisdom that is oppressive to our minds and hearts and consciences. And no one can really function under that. And the good news that I have for you this morning from the book of Proverbs is that is not God's expectation of sinners in a fallen world. Proverbs assumes that we are fools in need of teaching. And so we get a little teaching, and we do some good things with it, and then we do some foolish things with the teaching as well. And so we get a little more instruction. We learn a little bit more. We gain a little bit more wisdom, but that folly is still in us. That naivete, that simplicity, 
that leads us to do unwise things and even to transgress God's law. Those things still happen. And then there's this fallen world that we are living in where we have to make decisions in the midst of the sins of other people. And we have to try to decide what's the best route to go here through this fallen world. The book of Proverbs assumes that you're going to get some of those decisions wrong. It's assuming it because we are sinners. We are the fools in Proverbs. And we are the wise in Proverbs. We are both of those people. And so the book of Proverbs assumes uh, a process of learning wisdom. So the, the first bit of good news that I have for you this morning is that Proverbs is not calling us to get every decision right. That is not the standard. Proverbs is calling us to something different. And the concept I want to present you is, is the concept of virtue ethics. Virtue ethics is the idea, basically, that you may not do every individual thing right, but you build up the habits, the patterns, and the virtues that over time help you to get more things right and more and more and more. So when we talk about the wisdom of God in Proverbs, I believe that we are not talking about a a collection of rules that are like tripwires. And you cross those tripwires, you trip them off, and things explode and and traps open in front of you, and and the punishment of God strikes you like lightning. This is not the situation we're in in Proverbs. The situation we're in, instead of trying to get every decision right, Proverbs is calling us to build up the habits that yield right decisions. In other words, you build up a pattern of behavior That every single day, you want that pattern to get stronger. You want those virtues to go deeper into your heart. And over time, those virtues show you one more right decision and another one and another one. And when you make wrong decisions, you go back to the habits you need to build up. You build those habits up stronger and you come at it again as a sinner in a fallen world by the grace of God learning under God's teaching and leading. In other words, wisdom has a pattern of behavior. Our job is to learn that pattern by the grace of God, and then our individual decisions more and more will get better and better and better. I believe the whole Bible teaches this process, and uh, that is to say the worksheet of life, as it is taught by Proverbs, is not so that you get every question right. The worksheet is there to drill you, to teach you the habits. And the stronger your habits are, the more questions you get right as you make decisions in life. Let's unpack this this morning. We're going to look at four virtues. I'm going to call them intellectual virtues. I don't mean to use fancy language there, but that's what they are. They are virtues of the mind. There are ways that that virtuous, godly people think. They are the patterns of wisdom. We're going to look at four of them, and then we're going to, to ask, what would it be like to build up one of those virtues? We're going to take one of those virtues and say, here's what it would look like to build up that habit in your life. And then we're going to give, uh, ask two questions as a kind of test for the presence of wisdom in our lives. Let's dive in. So we look at our text this morning, Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, where we are putting wisdom under a microscope. We read this, chapter 1, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. 
the first two verses of this prologue to the book of Proverbs, uh, this, this trailer that's whetting our appetite for what is in the rest of the book, the first two verses are talking about one virtue, a pattern of behavior, a habit, and we're going to call this virtue learning. The first virtue of wisdom, the first pattern of behavior that we see in the book of Proverbs is that the wise, godly person is constantly learning, learning about all kinds of things, learning from all kinds of situations, learning from doing things right, learning from doing things wrong, learning from those who come before us, learning from those who come after us. Uh, We have um, Solomon as our example here. Solomon was given wisdom by God. But uh, what we need to understand about uh, this, this amazing man and the gift of wisdom that God gave him, we need to understand that this was not a zap where Solomon was praying this prayer and suddenly God said, I will grant your prayer for wisdom, zap. And now Solomon is instantly wise. That's not what happened. What happened was this man started to learn at a deeper level. He started to see things in his interactions with people and take away things from his experiences that other people miss. He was simply learning. He was learning faster. He was learning deeper. And he was learning under the direct hand and tutelage of God. Learning is a habit it is a virtue. It's something, it's, a, it's a, a pattern of your behavior that you have to build. Uh, it's not something that happens by accident. Well, I say it doesn't happen by accident. Sometimes it does. Sometimes I learn things accidentally. But I will tell you that I consider it my job to be a learner. It's my job to build up that habit of every person I talk to, every situation that I'm in, no matter what the conversation is about, since I have asked God for wisdom, and I have, since I have done that, I want to learn from everything. And the more I learn, the more I want to learn. I want to keep that softness of heart, that receptiveness to experience that is the mark of an intellectually virtuous, godly person, always learning. Um, When I was uh, first in ministry, uh, I was in uh, the Evangelical Free Church uh, out in Orland. I was there for 12 years, and so I was participating in the the western district of the Evangelical Free Church and interacting with all of those pastors. They are still uh, wonderful colleagues today. And uh, one of the things that uh, a couple of pastors and the district superintendent told me probably um, 15 years ago now is you need to get your Ph.D. And my response was instantaneous. I don't want a Ph.D., I'm done with school. I hate school. Didn't like seminary. I, I, don't, I don't want to go back. So thank you for your input. It is very important to me, but I'm, I'm actually not going to do that. Well, they kept at it. They said, we saw what you wrote here. I heard that sermon that you gave. You need to go back to school and get your PhD because that's the next thing for you. And my response, again, was, "Mm, no, no, I don't think so. I thought about that years ago. I thought about maybe getting a Ph.D., but but I just don't want to, so I'm not going to. Thank you, again, for your input, but I'm I'm going away now. (laughs) And then we'd go into meeting after meeting after meeting, and they kept saying, seriously, You were built to do this. And if you don't do it, you are missing something that God has for you. 
So I began to look into it. And um, I applied to a program, got into it. And by that point, I had bought into the vision that I need to take this step and get a higher level of training to keep learning. Because what I have, maybe it's good, but I need to stay sharp. I need to stay, stay soft and responsive. I need to be under the training of men who are more experienced, have deeper knowledge, and are deeply schooled in the toolbox of scholarship. I need that. So I bought in and started the program, and what I would say now is, yeah, I am called to do that. That was indeed the next step for me, and who knows what that means in the future. I'm not going to leave pastoring but what it means I bring to pastoring is more learning. Uh, it is a virtue and a habit that I would commend to you. I would look in every situation that you go into for something to learn. If you build that habit, you will have a rich life. Now, there's a vice that is the opposite of this. You might think of each one of these virtues when we go through it. You might think, what is the opposite vice? A vice is an evil habit, not just a bad habit, like eating too many french fries. It's not in that category. It's wrong. It's a pattern of behavior that is the opposite of a virtue. A virtue is a habit that is good, morally right. A vice is a habit, a pattern of behavior that is deeply wrong, and it's built into the structure of your life. The vice that is the opposite of learning is not ignorance. It's idle curiosity. We are in the age of Facebook. You can learn all the time. Just scroll more and more and more. And you can take in the information, and you can say, oh, that's interesting. Oh, look at that. Isn't that neat? Oh, how cute. Oh, how disgusting. That makes me... And you can learn this way, and then you can dive into some area, and you can find a pathway on the Internet where you can start forming all sorts of opinions about this area, something in politics, something in religion, something in... you name it. Cars, sports. There are veins in this world that you can mine, and you can, you can gather up information, and there are Christians who do this with doctrine and theology. Um, Early in my ministry, I pastored a church that was full of the idly curious. They read the first third of many, many good books. They never read them all the way through. And they wouldn't submit to any training about what was in those books. They were just, oh, look at that. That's brain candy for me. I like that. That's really interesting put it away, move on to the next thing. That is not what we're talking about. That will make you intellectually sick because it takes your intelligence and it just dissipates. It's like dumping out a bucket of water in the hot sun. And it spreads out. It's not going to accomplish anything. It's not going to refresh anything. It's just going to heat up and evaporate into the air. So there's a virtue that we need to build up, learning, and then there's a vice that we need to be careful not to build up. And that's the vice of idle curiosity. Second virtue in this passage, verse 4. To give prudence to the simple. Prudence is a virtue. You may pipe up and say, that was also my great-grandmother's name, prudence. Did you know it was a thing uh, generations ago to name particularly uh, girls after the virtues? Chastity, prudence. Um, I don't know if they named anybody temperance, but uh, 
the, the charity is hmm? really the, the, okay so someone was named temperance it's a good name but it, the idea of this was naming someone after a virtue prudence was a very common name that uh, the parents would give their daughters not so much anymore um, because we don't think in terms of virtues anymore, but prudence is very simply the habit, the pattern of always looking ahead, looking down the road. What's coming? What is, what is on the horizon that is going to affect me? And so you're looking down the road, you're forming plans about what may be coming, both the good and the bad. There's good coming down the road. The prudent person looks at it and says, how shall we use that good most effectively? When you look down the road, look out on the horizon, you say, there's danger out there. How do we avoid that? Or there's want and lack and poverty coming up out there. There's economic difficulty coming. How do we deal with that? Um, so this is the habit of prudence. You're looking and considering all of the possibilities about something. Now, so, so put this together. If you're developing a pattern in your life of always learning in every situation that you're in, then one of the things that that, that virtue is going to feed is the virtue of prudence. Because you're going to know stuff. You're going to have learned from people of vast experience and you're going to take that information, you're going to look ahead in your life and you're going to say, oh, what that guy saw could happen to me. I wonder what I should do to prepare for that. So, um, have you ever talked to somebody who went through the Great Depression? Let me rephrase this. Did some of you go through the Great Depression? Talk to these people. Because you learn something about prudence and gathering. Um, sometimes you learn something about hoarding. There was that too. But you, you learn about how to keep stuff and take care of it and how to be inventive with it. Uh, amazing skills that would all go into the category of prudence. Uh, now, what's the vice that's the opposite of prudence? I'd say at least one of those vices would be indecision. I once worked with a leader who was so prudent he could never make a decision. Prudent in quotation marks. Every time the leadership would meet together, we would make a decision. Week later, he would come back with three reasons why we should unmake that decision. And, you know, the first five times that happened, you say, wow, this, this guy's prudent. Then you realize... You never make a decision because there's always some danger out there. There's always something that could threaten your plan. And so uh, this sort of person is not so much prudent as indecisive. There's a time to call it, make it, make your best call given what you know and go and execute your plan. To live in indecision is ultimately to break your promises to the people around you. Because I went through meeting after meeting after meeting with that leader, and we made decision after decision. He says, yes, I'm on board, but he wasn't. Not one time. So indecision ends up being a kind of promise-breaking, and it's an intellectual vice. Third virtue that forms a, a pattern of behavior for wisdom. Discretion. To give prudence to the simple, verse 4, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Discretion is the intellectual virtue of seeing the differences between things. I pulled out the dread word discrimination a couple of weeks ago. That's another word for the same action. Where you look at something and you say, okay, this part is good, this part is not good. This could be useful and helpful, but this over here, this other part of the same plan might be harmful. 
And a person of discretion understands that they're in a fallen world are fine shades of good and bad. And you have to look closely and confer deeply about these things. When you develop the habit of learning discretion, then you find yourself facing decisions and asking all sorts of of, uh, questions that you would not have asked before. What is good about this plan? What is harmful about this plan? What do we need to change? What do we need to modify? So... Uh, discretion is the habit of making distinctions between things. So let me reframe this. If you are relying on words from the Lord to tell you what to do, can I commend to you the virtue of discernment? This is not a zap that comes from God. This is a process where God teaches you case by case, experience by experience. Here is how to distinguish between good and bad. And here, is, here are some ways that you can spot these differences and make decisions about them. We too often treat the Christian life as if we are puppets and God just sort of moves us however he wants us to go. That is not how this works. I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't intervene and lead us and show us things and tell us things. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying where God lives is in discernment. That's why he gives us his spirit to teach us to distinguish between truth and falsehood, good and evil, usefulness and harm. The vice that is the opposite of discernment, I would call it something like rationalization. Making up excuses to do the things you want based on distinctions that aren't real. I'm not getting drunk. I'm witnessing to unbelievers. That's not a distinction. That's a rationalization. Don't call it discretion. If you build up that habit in your life, then you find yourself making excuses for whatever you do and calling it good based on distinctions that are really worthless. So, keeping it focused here on the virtues, we want to build up a pattern of learning, a pattern, a habit of being prudent, looking ahead. We want to build up a pattern of distinguishing between the fine shades of good and evil. We're going to look at a case of this in a moment, fear not. Last, uh, last virtue here, humility. Look at verse 5. Let the wise hear and evaluate what they hear and judge it to see whether it is as wise as they are. Is that what you read? I don't read that either. I just made that up. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. Well, Solomon, if they're wise already, why would they need to learn? Because that's the whole point in what Solomon is saying. The wise understand that they need to learn. They understand they don't have all the answers. They have a posture of soft-hearted humility toward the situations and the people in their life. That's what makes them wise. So when you speak to a wise person, they open their ears and their learning increases. They actually get wiser. Why? Because they see how much they still don't know. But now they can account for that and they can learn more. There are some, some of us want to be wise so that we can be judges. The wise in Proverbs want to be wise so they can learn And stay humble. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying. The words of the wise and their riddles. The wise person who is following the Lord. And following the spirit of God. Is in that posture of saying. Life is complicated. 
and people have told me things that had wisdom in it, but I had to think about it. And as I look at the situations in this fallen world that I am facing, there are riddles out there. And I need to puzzle over them and I need the guidance and discretion that God teaches me to learn how to make decisions throughout all of this. This is the attitude of humility. Humility is an intellectual virtue. It's saying, I don't know it all. It's even going further and saying, I don't know very much. Maybe, maybe we can compare with each other what we know. But those conversations are kind of a drag. And Paul says, it's not wise. What we know is in comparison with what we need to know about this fallen world. And in comparison to that, I don't know very much at all. So I guess I'd better stick to the basics and increase in learning. This is the attitude of humility that, that we need to strive for. It's a habit. It's a posture. It's a, it's a pattern of behavior. And it doesn't happen by accident. There's no zap that makes you humble. It's something that we are working on every single day. And in even using this word and in teaching about humility, I'm not saying I'm humble. I'm saying this is what we need. This is the pattern we need to build. This is what I need to build. And just because I built it three days ago doesn't mean that I can't tear it down today. So, the vice on the other side, the opposite of humility, is scorn. You might say, well, the vice is pride, surely. Okay, it is. That's true, but I'm going to use the word scorn because that is a pattern of behavior where you express your superiority over everything and everyone around you through sarcasm, insult humor, put-downs, judgment, unrelenting scorn. It's the opposite of humility. So let's take a look at our society before we do that. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, humility, the virtue. The very next phrase shows you the vice. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Notice that emotion word, despise. They have contempt for it. It means they're putting themselves above all learning, all discretion, everything. I will not be taught, period, over and out. So, as we look at our society, is our society built for the virtues, the patterns of behavior of wisdom? I think that's an easy one to answer. No. Our society is built for the idly curious. It is built for the scornfully opinionated Our society is built for the here and now, what is right in front of your nose, not what is down the road 25 years from now. And because our society is built for all of these vices, especially the vice of rationalization, making up reasons why you should just continue to do what you're doing, The reason our society is in such steep decline is because we have rejected wisdom and, in particular, the behaviors of wisdom, the virtues that are extolled in this passage. Now, let's let's drill down on one of these virtues and let's just ask this question. What is it like to build up one of these habits? you want to build a pattern of behavior in one of these four areas, how would you do it um, and, and what does that look like? So we're going to take just the virtue of prudence out of those four. How do you build up a habit of prudence? And we're going to take as our example uh, 
Abraham. I'd like you to turn to Genesis 13. We're going to kind of survey Abraham's uh, conduct in Genesis 13 and 14, just some quick examples of how he learned and exercised prudence. Abraham is a sojourner, an exile, in the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is like our country. It is filled with moral, spiritual, and physical danger. There is sexual sin all over Canaanite society in every family. Um, The whole society is structured so that sexual sin just keeps reproducing itself in, in life after life. And furthermore, it is violent, it is idolatrous. No one in this society worships Yahweh, the living God, the God of Abraham. No one except Abraham and his people. Abraham has a problem in this society uh, as he wanders around. His, uh, his flocks and his family have gotten too big for the amount of land that they're on, and his nephew Lot has uh, his herds and flocks. Abraham has his, and their herdsmen are quarreling. You know this story, so they need to divide and go different directions so that they don't have strife day in and day out. So they go up uh, on a place in, in uh, Genesis 13. Abraham says, okay, here's the land. Which way are you going to head? Well, down in one valley is this green, lush place called Sodom and Gomorrah. It's beautiful. This is, you just take one look at this place and you say, that's the place we want to go. That's where the good life is. You look at the rest of it, it's big land, there's plenty of space, but it's not as good as the land down with Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the first thing. In order to build a pattern of prudence, you have to trust God. You have to have a reverent fear and awe of who God is so that you look at who God is and who He is is the baseline for your choices. That's what tells you which way to go. So uh, Abraham... Abram at this time gives the choice to Lot. And uh, so, verse 11 of Genesis 13, Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Look at the next verse. Now the men of Sodom... We're wicked, great sinners against the Lord. I know everybody goes right to the issue of homosexuality there, but that was only one issue of many in that city that made it uh, an incredibly dangerous place to be. So the Lord, uh, Abram gives the choice to Lot and, and basically says, whichever way you go, I will go the other way. Lot chooses to dwell in Sodom, in the midst of all of that wickedness, not exercising prudence, Abraham goes the other way. Look at what happens right after this. Verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. You know what the Lord's affirming there? You and I, Abram, we're like this. No daylight. You're walking with me. You fear me. You revere me, and I am with you. I am going to give all of this land to you. So don't worry about Lot. Don't worry about any of that. Just follow me. So Abram, verse 15, 
verse 18, moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built a great big house and settled down to live the good life. No, he built an altar to Yahweh. We're going to worship him here in the middle of all of this. So you want to build prudence? You have to build it on the foundation of a changed heart toward God. God is good. He is gracious. What He restricts is right. What He provides is right. Everything that comes from His hand, even the trials that He allows, will be turned for our good. I'm following Him. That is the beginning of prudence. Can't have prudence without it. All you can have without the fear of the Lord is expertise. And you know how great that is. Second way to build this pattern, continuing with the experience of Abraham, is to exercise foresight. Abraham's in a dangerous uh, country. It's physically threatening. There are kings all over the place. They all have their own armies. And a war starts, and a big, the big guy in the neighborhood sweeps in, takes, among other people, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, captures Lot and his whole family in the bargain. And so this is a big deal. Uh, they, they sweep into the land, and uh, so it's a disaster for everybody. Drop down to verse 13 of Genesis 14. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he said, Oh no, there's nothing we can do. I I never saw this coming. Look at this. When he gets this word, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's way up in the north. When did he train them? That day? I don't think so. I think the way you train people for war is you look down the line and you see the threats. And you start to say, I should be ready for this. My family should be ready for this. So we're going to train. Day in, day out, week in, week out, year by year. There is a regimen of training for defense that Abraham exercised. This is foresight. So when you're walking with the Lord and you're fearing Him and and wanting to serve Him and please Him, this, this thing starts to come into play out of that heart to serve God called foresight, looking ahead and seeing what's coming and getting ready for it. That's really at the heart of prudence because prudence is always looking at the horizon saying, what's coming? What good things are coming? How shall I use them? And what bad things are coming? And what shall I do about it today? to get ready for this. Abraham is in a position to fight this battle because he exercised foresight. You want prudence? Build a habit of looking ahead and see what's coming so that you can start today to do something about it. He wins this battle. Um, He gets back, the king of Sodom, all uh, several other kings as well, comes away with all kinds of spoil. He rescues Lot and his whole family. And then he shows some insight. Verse 17 of chapter 14. After his return from the defeat of Kador Laomer, I had to practice an hour to say that (laughs) because I saw it coming. I was prudent (laughs) and trained myself None of that is true. Uh, the kings who were with him and the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. That's the God Abram worships. 
very tempting to get off on this amazing rabbit trail, but I'm going to exercise the virtue of self-discipline, and we're going to keep going. And he, Melchizedek, blessed him, Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. This is a great thing. This is a big victory celebration. Abram gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. So he's, he's gathered up all this spoil from the battles. He's captured all this wealth. He gives a tithe to Melchizedek in worship of the Lord, and then this happens. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. I'm going to pay my bills as I go. You saved my hide. Just give me my people and take all my stuff and accept it as payment for services rendered. You are the one, the strong man in this area who saved us from that king who's... Name is unpronounceable. So, ah, that's great. I'm rich. And this is God taking away from the bad guys and giving the stuff to me. What could go wrong? This is really great. I can build more altars for the Lord with all of this wealth. Verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, but Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, these are other Canaanites, take their share. Take your stuff with you. I don't want it. I've got the Lord. There's insight here. He's saying I'm not going to be bought off with gifts from that guy. What's he doing here? He's preserving his financial independence and his economic power base by not making himself dependent on a wicked man. This is insightful. It's prudent. So if you want to build prudence, by the way, notice how the other virtues we mentioned come into play here. Abraham has spent time learning He has spent time training for war. That's more learning. He got the foresight uh, to see what was coming by all of this learning. And he shows his insight by uh, that he's got a habit of discretion. He distinguishes between the good and the bad, the useful and the harmful. You see how all of these virtues are coming together in the one virtue, prudence. So the good news here is all you have to do is start on one. Just build one of these virtues into your life. You'll end up with all of them. Because one of these patterns is just an entryway into all the others. Nevertheless, uh, uh, Abram shows insight here. So if you want to build prudence, you start with the fear of the Lord. That sets your priorities right. And then... You start looking ahead. What's coming this week? What's coming next month? What bills are we going to be looking at in August? What is coming down the line in five years? Well, Jesus told us not to do that. I'm sorry. This is Jesus talking in Proverbs. It was Jesus talking in Ecclesiastes. What he says is, don't put your confidence in money. Definitely don't shift your confidence there because that is to lose the wisdom of God. But we are to look ahead, plan, and be insightful about our priorities. So how do you build this this pattern of prudence? Just break it down. Look ahead and ask, what are my priorities? And I need to learn those priorities from the living God who will care for me and protect me. Uh, One last thing that I would commend to you. 
is that Abram, throughout his conduct in Canaan, remains a free man. He has options. He has liberty. And part of prudence is guarding your options and keeping them open, not overcommitting, not uh, getting uh, underwater in your financial commitments, all of these kinds of things, so that you can retain the freedom to do what you need to do uh, as the Lord leads you in your life. So um, this is just a focus on one of these uh, virtues that we need to build. And as I say, the good news is just start building this one. You'll build three or four more virtues because they all feed each other. Let's conclude this morning with a couple of tests. We've got wisdom under a microscope. Let's make a test for the presence of wisdom in your life. Two questions. What is your attitude toward being taught? If you're like me, an argumentative, I come from a long line of argumentative people. We do it for fun. I have added to that legacy two boys who are also, like me, doing it for fun. If you're argumentative with people who are teaching you, that means you're using your, you're using your smarts to destroy learning. I didn't start learning until I started using the gifts God had given me to ask questions instead of arguing. What's your attitude toward being taught? That's going to tell you whether virtues of wisdom are at work and operating in your life. Second question. How are you using time in your decision-making? If you're saying, I'm not using time in my decision-making, that's telling you that you're reacting to whatever is right in front of your face. What, what we need to recognize, and this is very good news, is that we don't face a lot of big decisions in life Our big decisions are just a lot of very small decisions made in sequence. If you can look ahead and build time into the big decisions of your life, it will help you make prudent decisions in the day-to-day, the small steps. And the more you do that, the freer you become and the more options you retain. And you start to see the benefits and fruits of wisdom. So, if you are not using the tool of time, then the place to begin learning the virtues of wisdom is with that word foresight. Let's look ahead. Let's look at the horizon. Big picture. What's coming? And let's, let's ask those kinds of questions. Maybe you say, I can't do that. I don't do that because it scares me. If that's the case, beloved, there is abundant comfort for us because when I look at the horizon, I get pretty scared too. The comfort is that the same God who is walking us step by step through every small decision, he's got the horizon too. And he knows what is coming. He knows our way through it. And as we learn prudence from his guidance, as we learn wisdom in all of its aspects, we are going to receive comfort, deliverance, provision, protection from him. Don't be afraid of the horizon. Fear God. What can man do to me? It's deeply true. So, as I said, you can... uh, Boy, there is a stampede here. You always give questions. I will give time to each of you. You don't have to. Wow. So, there's another virtue in need. 
Uh, patience. By the way, if you have to go, uh, this is kind of an add-on for the service here, so uh, we understand if you need to go. Um, um, so, wow, we really got a lot of questions here. Uh, let's see. I've heard of the Constitution being a living document, but I think that refers to the fact that it can be amended. So what exactly is meant by the Bible being alive since it doesn't change? Very good question. We are not talking here about an evolving Bible. When people talk about the Constitution or the Bible being a living document, a lot of times what they mean is it evolves to adapt to us. That's not the case. Again, let's go back to the, uh, the image of the lion dropped down here in this room. Who adapts to whom? We adapt to the lion. The lion's in charge. And when we say the wisdom of God, the word of God is alive, we mean it's on the offensive. It is sovereign. It is in charge. And we are adapting to it. We do not mean that it is a, a kind of amorphous thing that changes from situation to situation. We're saying God is pursuing us. And he is chasing us down to give us his truth. And so we're talking, using the term alive in the sense of Hebrews 4.12 and 13. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And the secrets of all in the world are open and laid bare before him. It's that kind of alive. It's the kind of alive we don't mess with. Very good question. Um, Next one here. Your next doctorate should be in math. <laughs> that is not going to happen, Heath. Where did, where did Heath go? He, Heath asked that question. He fled. He asked me that question and he left. Oh, well. Yeah, that's, that's wisdom. He saw, saw danger coming and he fled. Oh, there he is. <laughs> He's still out there. Uh, no, I'm not going to get a doctorate in math. I, that's, that's not going to happen. Okay, yeah, well, no, I mean it this time. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that you clarified that rape and other sexual sin are symptoms with respect to Sodom. Ezekiel, oh, this is good stuff. Ezekiel 16.49 lists the primary iniquity of Sodom as pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness, not what others might think. Because of that lovely man of Calvary, and then he, he signs his name here, prudence also reflects a healthy attitude of stewardship toward God's assets. Excellent. Abram, I can't let this go by because, you know, it's an opportunity to talk about stewardship. Abram gives the tithe to Melchizedek. He doesn't pay his bills first. He doesn't decide what he's going to do with all this money. I'm going to worship the possessor of heaven and earth first. That is prudence. In my experience, in the experience of many of you, that is prudence to give to the Lord first. Okay, these guys were in such a hurry to get up here. Wonder what they want to know. What's with Ecclesiastes 1.18? For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Um, very good question. I'm, I'm kind of trampling in Paul's field here. Um, but as I take a stab at that, uh, one of the things that Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is about is the fallenness of the world. And so to become wise about making decisions as a sinner in a sinful world is to become deeply acquainted, more acquainted than we ever wanted with how sinful and dark this world is. Uh, because when you actually begin to look at the horizon and account for these things, it's, there's a weight on your spirit. 
there is also comfort for that. And that's why we need to be worshipers and enjoyers of God. Uh, not just uh, stating, expressing woe over the condition of the world. It's a very good question. Another crack here about math. Um, both Sodom and Canaan were wicked to Abram. Uh, what would happen if to Abram if Lot had chosen Canaan? Very good question. So Abram gives the decision to uh, Lot. Says, you go one way, I'll go the other way. Lot imprudently chooses Sodom. Um, the, the answer, what would happen if Lot had chosen the other stuff and Abram was left with Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, the, the tell there is in what Lot does after he makes his decision. He takes his tent and pitches it all the way to Sodom. His compromise in heart is so deep that he, he loves the way that city lives. And he wants to be up next to it. If Abram has to make that decision, if Lot chooses Canaan, you would see him do the same thing with similar cities, though perhaps not as bad, in another part of the country. He would take that same course, even though he made a different choice of direction. Whereas Abram would stake out some territory, like we see him do uh, in Canaan. He'd plant himself in a place and he'd build an altar to the Lord there. And so sometimes, and this is a very important question here, sometimes you don't have just a clear path in front of you. Canaan for Abram or for any godly person was not a clear path. It was still a dangerous, sinful place. He still had to behave prudently in that. But what Genesis is bringing out is that Lot's imprudence and compromise with sin was expressing itself in the choice that he made. Very good question. Um, let's see, two more questions here. I'm blitzing through this. How humbling was it to realize the PhD pursuit was actually the best for you? Uh, we all should humble ourselves to increase our learning. It was very humbling. Um, I want to do it myself. Uh, I want to I want to read the books myself. I don't want someone to tell me what to read. I want someone to tell me how to write. I'm a good writer. I'll write it myself. I'll write it my way. Um, you can't do a PhD with that. You, you have to junk it. And boy, what a bunch of worthless stuff. I'm glad it's on an ash heap somewhere and I hope I don't go back and pick it up. Because then sometimes, of course, what happens is you get the degree, you've learned all that stuff, you go back and pick up all of the baggage that you left behind to get the degree. So you can hold me accountable on that one. I've made a decision and have been acting on it for many months. I've been schooled in the habits that yield right decisions, and yet I waver. I operate under these virtues ineffectively, constantly questioning myself back and forth, back and forth. Help. What a great question. Um, so the, there are many different ways to go at this. One way would be to say, okay, take a look at the vices, the patterns that you've built into your life that you are um, continually, uh, that are undermining godly decisions. What are those vices? Pick those off one at a time. Um, so that would be one way. And I, I think there's, there's some wisdom in that, some merit in that. But I have ultimately found there's only one way to keep going forward in the Christian life, and that is to love and fear the Lord himself. He knows the things in my heart that need to be torn down. 
And so if I keep pursuing him and following him, and if, if I waver and stumble and fall down, and then I just get back up and keep going, if I do that, and I do this every day, then I find that my love for the Lord grows because I see him pouring out grace upon grace upon grace. Then, because my love for him grows, I find I want different things. And that's the key. We change what we want by changing what we love. If you pursue loving the Lord, it will change the wants, lusts, habits that fortify your vices. Let me put it even more bluntly. You cannot change by hating your sin. Can't be done. Because usually what we hate are the consequences of sin, the humiliating consequences of it, the disabling, imprisoning consequences of it. That does not teach us to leave our vices behind. It actually fortifies them in our souls. The way we change is by growing in our love for the Lord. And as we do that, we find that he just starts overriding our vices. He literally makes himself more valuable and his blessings more valuable to us than our vices. This is the only thing that I've found that really works.